0: If you think about it, we have like this garage full of interesting parts now and we're mixing and matching and using all of them to try to cure diseases, to run new experiments and all of that. And every time we do, we're just opening completely new fields of biology, if we think about it in this biotech landscape. And so once we've opened these entirely new fields of biology, then we're starting to see more and more we can take from what evolution is teaching us to build more tools. What are a couple of the new fields of biology we've opened up? Yeah, so like I would say cell therapy being one of the sort of canonical textbook answers here, right? Using cells as medicine, training our cells to be medicine. Joe
1: Lonsdale, welcome to American Optimist. Francisco, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Joe. This is Dr. Francisco Jimenez. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> You're a your, your doctor from a, your Stanford PhD in bioinformatics. Yeah. And, and you were born in Argentina, Francisco, but you came here when you, your family came here when you were quite young. Yes. What brought you guys to the U.S., first of all?
0: Yeah, so uh, my dad was an electrical engineer by training, and they were in, I was born in Lucha in Argentina. My family's from Mendoza. And really, you know, my family just realized that the opportunity for kind of an electrical engineer uh, was much greater in the United States than it was for Argentina. And so they had kind of a a life and a path ahead of them. That so fina-
1: financial have. opportunity,
0: business opportunity was bigger here. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of like the canonical case of the chasing the American dream, right? So they were doing well, but there was just a ceiling to to mobility that my parents could see while they stuck in our and, and they came to
1: the Midwest, to Phoenix. You said he helped open an Intel fab in Costa Rica at some yeah. point,
0: I think. Yeah. So we went to uh, the Midwest. It was supposed to be a two-year visa. And then uh, about one and a half years into that, my dad... Uh, Left the role and then just spammed the entire country with his resume, Uh, and then for for anything. And they started out going like, "Let's go to Florida, let's go to Miami, let's go to Los Angeles, go to San Francisco." Uh, We ended up in Phoenix, Arizona, where uh, he got his only interview was with Intel there, and he said that he could program in C. Uh, and then, with the sort of last money we had, he bought uh, Kernigan and Richie's Programming in C book and then learned it on the plane. Uh, and then uh, got the job at Intel. Uh, and then we went to the Phoenix, Arizona site and were there for eight years. And then, after that, when they were starting the fab in Costa Rica, he uh, took us all to basically help open that fab. I was in Costa Rica for two years, and then we came back to the U.S. to the Folsom site uh, for Intel. Did so. you guys
1: speak Spanish at home because you're from Argentina? Yeah, so you already kind of knew it when you were in Costa Rica.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was it. Was a big impetus. We either had to go to Israel or Costa Rica because we were kind of done with Arizona and decidedly better at uh, Spanish than uh, Hebrew. I speak pretty good English. <laughs> in That's funny. You could have been in Israel. Yeah. And then and you went you went to Berkeley undergrad. Yeah. When, when did you apply to Berkeley? Uh, honestly, I mean, not to belabor the Intel point, but uh, Andy Grove was the CEO of Intel, and my parents always said Andy Grove, Went to Berkeley. It's the best school in the in got the it. nation, and so we were just like incepted in my head in the weird way it does. to, to Andy people. Grove is a
1: pretty cool guy. As a Stanford <laughs> guy, I can forgive you for that mistake. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what I always like to say is like Berkeley is where I learned humility, and Stanford's where I learned entitlement, uh, which kind of angers both groups off, which is why it's the best kind of joke. But I think it's you need both of those to I think succeed in sort of entrepreneurship. And so after Berkeley, you got your PhD at Stanford. Yeah, and how come you studied bioinformatics? So I did research at UCSF in a gene therapy lab for Parkinson's disease, and that's really where I fer- fell in love with research. And uh, a lot of my work there was sort of analyzing images uh, in MRIs to see the distribution of of how injected gene therapies distribute, as as it pertains to gene expression. Uh, and just absolutely loved the idea of of at the time, in 2010, was not a very loved field. Imaging informatics was kind of a backwater. Uh, and, but that we could use what was AI at the time to kind of automate these human tasks, that was so exciting. Uh, and then I was kind of saved because around 2012, when deep learning came out, all of a sudden my field became one of the most exciting research fields ever. You found yourself in the middle of one of the hottest fields, exactly, kind of by mistake. Exactly. Which is, yeah, you know, it's better to be smart than lucky, right? Or sorry, lucky than smart. That's good. be <laughs> if you're smart and you get lucky, that's yes, probably, the exactly. best, probably the best combination. <laughs> and you, you were, you were obviously
1: one of the superstars there. I think you gave the commencement address after you graduated, or whatever. yeah, yeah.
0: Was, it's, it's plenty of wonderful things. I gave the Stanford. I was a PhD's. Speaker for 2015. It was uh, quite an honor. Awesome, and so and so you so, so you so you did really well there, and you're in the middle of this hot new field.
1: Maybe so you know a lot of people. I think we talked about earlier, like with our friend Rick, that they, they we're in a revolution in bio yeah. right now, which I know you you agree with. Give our audience some of the reasons why revolution in bio. What are the key things that have just started this revolution? Why is this happening right yeah.
0: now? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, you know it's kind of like. It, It's always hard. I think we have to choose arbitrary dates for this because it's like at what point in an exponential growth graph did everything get exponential, right? And the definition is that it's always always looks exponential along different scales. But like one sort of window I love to think about is between 2011 and 2012, right? Like so, I talked about how uh, AlexNet wins ImageNet, and that was really the sort of Fosbury flop for deep learning. Uh, And and but at the same time, within like the same sort of span of period is is when. Uh, Jennifer Doudna's work and Feng Zhang's work came out on CRISPR. So my friends who were into genetic engineering working on like talons or zinc fingers all of a sudden saw their entire field upended at the same time. They all of a sudden had a much better tool for genetic engineering that you couldn't have used before. Exactly. And so it was like we all kind of joke that we had to take our qualifying exams which is like what's the state of the art? And it was the fastest period of time from your qualifying exams being taken towards being obsolete. It was like the biggest Mm -hmm. waste of time ever because all of a sudden everything was neural nets, and everything I'd learned up until that point was kind of obsolete. And the same with the genetic engineering friends. When CRISPR came out, completely upended so, how we think about So, that this. one year in 2012 had major advances in AI, major advances in yeah. gene editing with, the, with yeah. this technology. And we also had CAR-Ts come out, right? Carl June had his first paper come out showing that he was able to cure a pediatric oncology patient in ALL with a CAR-T, which was like 30 years of effort, but that was such a big CAR-T deal.
1: being a chimeric antigen receptor T cell, this is when you... Basically, program a T cell to try to go after and kill the the, the B cell. Yeah. yeah,
0: exactly. So, and that you know, you've talked about this with Rick before, but like it's it's and so I like to jokingly call it like this Anus Weinabilius because like so you think about Einstein in 1905, he had his four papers that completely changed fit, physics, right? And he called this Anus Weinabilius, and I think within that year we had sort of three fundamentally transformative technologies and you think about like they've completely changed the field like nobody can study AI without studying you know neural nets deep learning. nobody can study gene editing or, or really symbio at this point without using CRISPR and nobody can really think about immune like uh, oncology without thinking about car Ts and immuno oncology is all the precedence there? they literally just transformed it. It's like why I like to think of them as like the Fosbury flop like he did he did the back jump and all of a sudden everybody had to do that back jump ever forever. In all eternity, and,
1: and and why did that all happen? Then I think you said maybe nature published the first Synbio paper like two thousands. We were thinking about yeah. that for a while. We've been doing gene editing other ways, yeah. for a while. Are oh, there's a coincidence that all this stuff happened, sort of?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably some some smarter like uh, philosophy of science answer here. I think maybe one way to, to think about that is that uh, at the very least, when it comes to to CRISPR and CAR Ts. You know, we had built the sort of enabling technologies and tools uh, for both reading and writing DNA. Like sequencing, obviously, had been Mm. the human genome sequence in 2000. That's kind of our breakpoint, 2000, 2001. Uh, But then actually having next gen sequencing really accelerate that allowed us to discover, you know, all the use cases behind CRISPR and do a lot of the enabling experiments. Uh, You know, you need to both, both be able to read, write, and modulate a system to be able to kind of do real science behind it. And so we had these great tools that we were able to do great experiments and you know, the proliferation of those tools probably led to these experiments coming out seemingly simultaneously. But and if you think about like deep learning, like similar, we had like cloud computation, we had GPUs, we had all the sort of baseline substrate for this kind of research, uh, and just finally had that sort of spark that kind of set it all off.
1: And 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 right now we're still, we say, growing exponentially in this field. There's still new tools we're creating all the time. They're yeah. letting us modulate in new ways, they're yeah. teaching us new things, which seem to be leading to us realizing we need better tools, would you keep creating? So it seems to be like this positive yeah. cycle. Tell a little more, Like, what are the key things that are happening right now in the last few years?
0: Yeah, so I would say that we are thinking a lot about... Um You know, there's, there's, if you think about it, we have like this garage full of interesting parts now. And we're mixing and matching and using all of them to try to cure diseases, to run new experiments and all of that. Uh, And every time we do, we're just opening completely new fields of biology, if we think about it in this biotech landscape. And so once we've opened these entirely new fields of biology, uh, then we're starting to see more and more we can take from what evolution is teaching us to build more tools. What are a couple of the new fields of biology we've opened up? Yeah. So, like, I would say, cell therapy being one of the sort of canonical textbook answers here right using cells as medicine training our cells to be medicine so uh, and if you think about the evolution of how medicine happened, it was like small molecules, right? Uh, it was kind of like our canonical early days uh, of German textile companies pivoting into chemistry. Then we had biologics starting in the 80s, the sort of initial biotech revolution. And now we're really looking at cells themselves, which are like the fundamental building blocks in our body. How do we engineer them to fight disease? Or even better yet, how do we think about our immune system, which is really the best disease-fighting mechanism in the world? How are we... Giving it stronger and better tools to do what it's already doing. Because the parts of the immune system will summon other parts of the immune system exactly. to do certain things. And we can maybe do that with cells ther- cell therapy as well. Exactly. Like, how do we help our immune system recruit other things? How do we help our immune system recognize cancers? Like, It's like vaccines, right? We're helping our immune system recognize something that's not there. But innately, the immune system is just doing exactly what it's always doing. We're just kind of giving it hints on how to do it. Other than cell therapy, are there other areas of biology that have just opened up a lot recently? What are some of the other things going on? Yeah, so I'd say outside of cell therapy, a thing we think about a lot is like biomanufacturing, biodiscovery, advanced materials, and biotech and whatnot. So uh, there's the human healthcare components. Then there's the sort of manufacturing components, you know, engineering, say yeast or E. coli to produce things that we normally produce in other ways. And this has been waves of this have been tried in the past and failed, but we're actually starting to see a lot of this. We're obviously seeing this in like food and food tech, where we have all these vegan foods, like impossible foods, whatever. And now we're seeing this with cheeses and really kind of a replacement space for for vegan and more sustainable foods there. But then biomanufacturing of advanced materials, right? So how do we create novel materials outside of petro chemicals uh with sort of interesting new biology biological uh uh, inspiration that gives us new this is
1: like how spiders make different types of silk exactly clothes if you take the proteins and and do that yeah
0: it's super cool and like we've you know if you think about it like so many of our chemicals derive from uh petroleum right and like we've we've really mined it to death and all the synthetic chemistry and all that it's like like 50 to 100 years old, but we're just at the early innings of saying, like, what are the properties of the biochemicals? How do we make them? Right? What are some of the other ones?
1: I remember there's the there's this like leather that's made from mushroom,
0: yeah, right now, which seems pretty cool. Yeah, there's so yeah, bolt threads and uh, Microworks both are making. Uh, vegan leather from from mushrooms and so vegan leather. Like, uh, this is for vegans. Stella that's McCartney right. has a purse, you know, with vegan leather. Which no is really cows great. were hurt in the manufacturing her purse. exactly. Just mushrooms, uh, <laughs> and uh, not but, really even much. Too many mushrooms because they're
1: growing it from scratch, right? Yeah, they're growing the mushrooms from. So scratch if you're a mushroom lover, you don't necessarily have to kill mushrooms to make
0: the purse. Yeah, either. I think I think we're comfortable with with killing mushrooms. We are. Okay. <laughs> so
1: that's, that's not canceled yet.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, but then, um, yeah, and on top of that, you know, we think about these from fibers uh, both for sort of technical garment wear but also from like ropes and next gen, uh say threads and everything like this for like technical uh, wear in sort of the field uh, awesome let's let's step back a little
1: bit what are the big problems that we should be trying to solve with biology with this new science with all these tools we're creating like as a society there's problems to solve I think curing disease is is it's yeah. a big and obvious one. That's kind of a big broad way. Are there, are there more ways of like digging into it? Like what are more specific problems we're trying to solve right now?
0: Um, so you mean outside of the realm of human healthcare or within human Even
1: even within human healthcare, are there ways of breaking it down better to like think about like like, like what are we going after and, and what are what are the ways in which in which business and science and policy, yeah. like like what are you inspired just to solve and fix?
0: Yeah, so I think I'll I'll scope this within human healthcare, and I think what I'm very inspired by is that as we get more exquisite control over biology, much more tunable control, uh, we get to stop thinking about diseases in the sort of broad population sense of the word and can start uh, narrowing them down into individual uh, uh, diseases. So like type 2 diabetes, for example. you would need insulin to treat it. And this is how we treat everybody with type 2 diabetes is you need insulin to kind of manage your glucose. But, you know... What's the causal reason for type 2 diabetes, right? It's overeating and whatnot. But where does that stem from? Could it be like depression and using food as kind of a crutch to help sort of self-medicate? Does it come from having some kind of physical injury that prevents you from being able to exercise? Does it come from some kind of genetic predisposition here? Like type 2 diabetes is so many different diseases if we think about it on a causal spectrum as opposed to on a symptomatic endpoint spectrum. And so what I got excited about is... How do we start breaking apart diseases on the individual basis? And we can do that because it makes sense. We can treat patients as individuals. We can sequence them. We can assay them. We can look at them across all of these different dimensions to say, here are the various reasons why you might have type diabetes versus you have type two diabetes, and then intervene accordingly. Right. So. So we have personalized interventions, personalized cures, yes. depending on what's going on. Exactly. So think about like a cell therapy company, right? Like. The 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 standard model would be cell therapy should not be done for type two diabetes because we have insulin and that's very cheap and a cell therapy would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. But what about somebody who uh, is scared of needles and cannot take their insulin, right? Uh, And all of a sudden they're a huge sort of. If it's a threat to themselves. Like they're obviously losing limbs. It's a hard, harsh to the family. It's a hard on the medical system. All of a sudden, when you start doing the math, you're like, a cell therapy might make sense because this might be a curative intervention that might be expensive up front, but it helps you down the line. And cell therapy eventually, hopefully, would get a lot cheaper if we yes. do these for everyone. Yeah, at absolutely. Some point. And so, yeah, there's this other part of this is like we can start thinking about individuals and hyper small populations of individuals as disease. But once we create the tools and technologies to cure those. We have this infrastructure layer that allows us to expand it to so many others. So we cure rare cancers with cell therapies today, but we're looking and building all of the infrastructure, the manufacturing systems, the logistics, the supply chain, to be able to broaden that to so many other diseases. And I think that's really exciting, is you have to think about like curing patients at these very small population levels, but building the infrastructure to broaden it, distribute it to everybody. And then think about new population spaces that we can start curing those Why patients. Why are we going after rare cancers right now versus really common cancers so rare cancers uh are generally have a much tighter sort of genomic signature that allow us to identify sort of causal reasons so we understand exist. it much better common cancer might have lots of different types of things going on exactly and then and then it just ba- bears the question what does common cancer mean right like so uh, we think
1: of maybe breast
0: cancer or something as sure. like, like a cancer a lot of people like yeah right but we might we might start changing the definition of breast cancer to like, you have a hair 2 positive uh, tumor in your breast. Right. And then we are treating hair two positive tumors. So, so there might actually be yeah.
1: 50 types of things people might call breast cancer that you have to exactly. be specific to, to treat.
0: There's nothing about our medicines, at least chemical medicines or, or or biological or whatever medicines that are that are necessarily about the part of the body it's in besides distribution and delivery. Uh, but we're starting to rethink how we think about that and say, like what's a PD one positive cancer? It doesn't matter the tissue of origin. What does PD one positive mean? So PD one might be uh, is a is a signal that says essentially don't eat me. Um so it's tricking
1: the immune system, telling it not to eat need exactly, eat it, even, even though yeah. it's a bad thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so when we block that, the cancer isn't able to sort of give the secret handshake with the immune system. And so the immune system recognizes it and kills it, right? Uh and so we're starting to think, okay, which kinds of cancers has this marker on it that we can block that will allow our immune system to come in well, and then you attack allow your cell therapy maybe to work exactly. A lot better.
1: And 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 when you when you break this rule down, it seems to outsiders there's like infinite things going on. It's just so complicated. And what's the right way to think about it at a high level? I mean, there's just so many tools and there's so many different signals and there's so many different, like you constantly from an outsider, you hear about these things from the bio world and there's like a thousand different things people are doing. Yeah. Like how, like
0: how do you keep this organized in your head and how should be how should we be oh, thinking man. about this space? I, I would love to say if I had it like deeply organized in my space, in my head. Uh, I think, um, so, are we talking about this from from somebody who's maybe, for example, a patient who wants to learn more? Are we talking about general public? Are we talking about how how maybe our smart friends in the general public? Maybe they want to eventually learn how to how to be helpful to some
1: of these companies, or maybe they're just curious for their family. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think um, what uh, the most helpful thing in my mind is understanding how value is created and how these things come to fruition. Right? How does medicine happen? Right. Uh, And we're starting to see this in sort of accelerated timeline under a microscope with, you know, obviously COVID vaccines, but going from sort of academic research, fundamental biological research. And then seeing how this gets spun into biotechs, which the venture community funds, and then using those biotechs, running sort of early clinical trials uh, to get enough excitement. that big pharmas are like, we can take this and commercialize this and bring this to large populations. Of let's people.
1: let's 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 drill down that a little bit then. So, so we so we have this university ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, the government sponsors a lot of that. Um, yeah. And there's some private sponsorships as well of research. Yeah. But, but the government does a lot. And then you have. These people will spin out, and they'll and they'll take breakthroughs, and they'll start biotech companies. Yep. And these companies will raise tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes billions of dollars, and they're doing something with that, and then they're and they're proving it out, and then they're and then they're partnering, usually with pharma, to distribute it and commercialize it and sell it to patients. I think that there's a view for a lot of people that you kind of have this breakthrough to university where it's like, Oh, we've cured this form of cancer. And then some business comes along and like takes it and makes a lot of money off it and kind yeah. of screws everyone. That's maybe the anti-business view here. Is there, is there another view of what's actually happening? Like what's the value add of all these people working at these startup companies from on these breakthroughs? Like what are they doing?
0: Yeah. I mean like historically that happens because of the Bay Dole act, which is basically IP licensing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that literally is is why we have a biotech ecosystem and so many curative things. So it's like that has proven out to be the mechanism that's great. You know, personally I think that this is valuable because governments uh, get to think on different timescales than say venture capitalists and, and and you know startups, right? A government can think on like this sort of 20, 30, 50 year time scale to say, let's fund exciting biology uh, just for the you know interest and pleasure of finding things out here, uh, that might turn into something. Might then lead that
1: might lead to a breakthrough that, that might be able to be exactly. used or something.
0: And so this like I actually really love the separation of allowing government to sort of sponsor things that that wouldn't necessarily have a clear commercial outcome today, because you know like. Venture capitalism, like uh, startups, the entrepreneurship ecosystems. These are the people who are like custom made, or, like ready and able to sort of take things and move them very quickly. So you have there's basic research
1: funding. Someone like Jennifer Doudna studying bacterial yeah. immune systems. Yeah. Turns out she discovers a mechanism that makes gene editing much better. Yeah. And then someone and then and then someone can now take that and, and, and then and, and so what what are what are what are these companies doing? Like how like how do they think about it? Because I I literally have you know friends who are progressive people in Congress, like shouldn't we just be taxing the companies for taking this IP and making all this money off it? Like, <laughs> like what are they what are they doing with, with this work and effort?
0: I mean you could tax the companies, but just imagine like if we didn't give people upside to translate these things, there would not be a system to actually sort of Commercialize these things in a sort of fast turnaround biotech ecosystem. We would be dependent. It's not like that that innovation would go away, but we'd be dependent on large incumbents, like large pharma's or large, you know, agriculture companies or whatever, to out-license this stuff. You would only be entrenching incumbents if you didn't allow sort of a startup ecosystem be built around. Technology. And what do
1: these people do at the startup When they take the technology, what yeah. what are they what are they doing? At that they point? build a
0: company around it. And then we sort of define the use cases that it's going to be applied to. So there might be some novel IP around a molecule that works for treating cancer, right? Uh, They might even do some initial work in humans at the academic uh, level. But then when we want to be able to say, let's put all the money behind all the enabling sort of science to approve it with the FDA, run an appropriate clinical trial that's evenly powered and has a randomized control trial. Uh, how do we do this in a way that we make it manufacturable at scale and sort of approachable by many, many people? Uh, what are all of these mechanisms that like take it from what is essentially a small scientific experiment or small scientific like study to a commercial sort of industrial level Drug that can be uh, given to hundreds of millions of people, and
1: a lot of these a lot of these companies are are platform companies in bio yeah. as well. Where they're developing some new technology or they're building it out. I know a lot of our smart computer science friends go work yeah. at some of these companies. Like, yeah. So, 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 so. I mean, what's what, what's going what's going on with that? So, there, there are people coming in and they're solving data problems that are relevant
0: to these things. Like, what are the data problems? So the data problems are really like. Uh, when we have these platform companies, and we were talking about earlier about you know this this read write modulate loop, right, mm. uh, or or a sort of standard design test build loop, right, um, that creates data. Every iteration of that creates data that we're trying to learn from, and. What's really exciting today is we're trying to shorten the cycle time of those loops, right? John Boyd's famous result from like OODA loops was whoever can do an OODA loop faster is going to succeed. You say an OODA loop is for yeah. people? Oh, I forgot what the acronym stands for, That's but That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was observe, I don't know, evaluate, something like that. But it was it was a studies in the Air Force and he was basically saying like what makes some fighter programs or fighter jets better than others and it was really their ability to observe an event and then process it, analyze it and then To it. And his sort of fundamental contribution to the Air Force was whoever can run this iteration faster is going to win in dogfights. And so Yep. Uh, this is kind of like bread and butter to us today in startup land. Whoever iterates faster learns faster because we just assume our y-intercept can be anywhere along learning. But it's really about like kind of that that derivative, like how fast are we improving? And as we build these platforms that can move so much quickly, and do so many experiments. We've got robotization. We've got you know high throughput experiments in biology. We've got microfluidics. That means I can do a billion experiments at once. Um, we generate a ton of data. Microfluidics, you do bill experiments at once. That means you're taking like tiny bits of, of something at yeah. lots of different times. Plating it all out, or even just doing crazy things like, you know, doing small experiments in each individual cell in a sample over like a billion cells and then sequencing it out to see like what responded and didn't respond to some kind of outcome. Is that really expensive to do that many cells now, or we've got that cheaper? Nah, it's pretty cheap. The expensive part is just like, say, all the chemicals or reagents, and just the time to do these kinds of things. Uh, and especially if we start doing it at high precision. But uh, that that kind of system, though, um, means we generate data, right? And we have to analyze it appropriately. This is where we need like so you the can data now generate factors. data
1: from literally millions or billions of experiments. Yes, and, and so you really do need computer scientists to map it out and to, and to yeah. analyze it.
0: Yeah, and then, and that's like I would say phase one, right? Like let's let's go back and reanalyze data that, or analyze data that's generating high throughput. But how do we start designing the experiments progra- progressively, right? So like, and then so and so these experiments are happening in the company with all this talent,
1: but they're not really happening as much in the university or the university is doing these things too. What's what's the, what's the difference?
0: The, the universities are doing this right, and some are doing the methodological work. They just don't have the resources. You can't really
1: attract many of the top people and teams to work really hard on things. So it's like equity-driven cultures and companies are better at some of these types of systems. Yeah,
0: and it's definitely like upside you know financial upside definitely motivates a lot of people here especially like if you're making i don't know million dollars at google as a software engineer it's very hard to to go into making like 70k as a postdoc but i think in addition to that, I think the most addictive part is the speed of this. in a In a laboratory setting, you might not have the resources. You can do the experiment. We know how to do the experiments frequently, but it's like, I just don't have like the robots to do, say, a zillion experiments in parallel. Uh, I don't have all the GPUs I would want to run like a full neural. It's and The like, culture is
1: probably not as obsessed with speed in in the university versus no, some uh, of the startups because yeah. you're not going to die if you don't go fast enough.
0: Exactly. Like, there, yeah, you you do need to publish right under some sort of defined time. Frame, but uh, the mission is different. The output is different than I think in a startup. Yes, you are basically running against the clock all the time. And generally, that clock is two years, right? And you need meaningful advances to be able to raise more capital to be able to continue going. Do you
1: think because of this dynamic, the startups sometimes have attracted the most talented people or the universities still have the most talented people or it's different types of talent? How do you think about that?
0: I think it's different types of talent. Startups and industry, at the very least in the past five years, has been some of the most insane amount of of poaching away from an academic university system.
1: Yeah, it does seem like a lot of good people are leaving universities to work on really exciting, fast moving startups that are yeah. solving, they're curing diseases and solving hard problems.
0: Well so think about like the bread and butter grant for like a biomedical researcher is an R01, right? That's like, you know, on the order of five million dollars it can cover your lab for five years. It's super prestigious. And getting a five million dollar grant is a big deal for yeah. us. Yes. And this is like it could be 18 years, like when I just submit like an NRSA every one, It was like, uh, sorry, it was, it was 18 months, right? You know, one rejection, which was pretty standard, and then optimization It was like a 200 250 page grant that I had to submit, uh, and and then I ended up with uh, on the order of like 100 150 grant, right? And so. Uh, Whereas now you go get a term sheet for for 10 million
1: dollars for which or 50 million dollars. Yeah, even. it's yeah.
0: you know there's, it's not unheard of. To pitch for a month and get a five million dollar term sheet, right? Oh, to yeah. be able to build these really focused things in super quickly, yeah. and you don't have restrictions, right? And the university takes fifty percent of the overhead. So if you make five million dollars, the university takes two point five of it. Oh wow! So the um, university. So the university needs that to to run all of their departments of diversity yeah. and stuff. No. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'd say that, but like, <laughs> what are they using it for? Well, you have uh, obviously centralized and shared services. This covers like rent on your lab space, right? Okay, so there's and, there's,
1: like, there's like real overhead, and then there's also yeah. maybe fifteen hundred administrators. They're making sure the university yeah, there's is not there's
0: and stuff. definite inefficiencies that yeah. you have no control over when you take that overhead. But there's That's value fair. to it as well. I'm not going to like of course say yes or no, but. At the very least, we can get the five million for a startup. Mm-hmm. Every one of those dollars, you know, we're going to all use yep. them
1: towards the things you're actually getting done. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Like big institution versus startup, yeah. also you're more efficient that way, and you probably don't have to ask permission every time you want to build something or do something. You probably just go much faster.
0: I wasn't allowed to expense any amount of alcohol for any meal when I had uh, grants. Well, uh, things,
1: things have definitely changed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, you know, in the university, should should it not? Uh, maybe be, maybe, if, maybe
1: as someone running ABC, I should talk to them about this <laughs> policy. I can probably learn a few things from Stanford. <laughs> save save some budget. Yeah. So stepping back a bit again. You're now working on investing in a lot of companies. You're helping build companies as well. Yeah. What's what's what's
0: the most fun part of what you do? Ooh. Uh, the most fun part, I would say... This is tough. I think it's basically getting to uh, actually turn ideas into action. Um, it's, you know... In grad school, or just honestly in in, in many, many slow moving institutions, you talk a lot about really cool stuff. There's very brilliant people and great ideas. And it kind of ends with like a, yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, and I think one of the most exciting parts is like, You can finish an exciting hour long conversation and have a follow up that means like writing a check, starting a lab, you know, hiring some people. We we helped come up with this idea for this
1: giant biomanufacturer resilience last year. I guess you probably couldn't have done that before in any other context. Yeah,
0: resilience was really hilarious because, like, we raised what, like, say, Fifty million dollars when the idea was like on the back of a napkin and we had like three people, but we just knew it was a big problem to solve for, uh, right? And, and
1: then, then and then use Bob's if, reputation to raise seven hundred fifty million for half yeah. the company and, and get going. Yeah, yeah it was
0: yeah. it was you know so crazy to think that that we were able to basically put together eight hundred million dollars in the span of like what five months uh, that would. That is actually impossible. I couldn't think of anything like that in in academia,
1: right? And Francisco, just really quickly explain, what is Resilience Bio?
0: Yeah, so, Resilience Bio is basically a biomanufacturing company focusing on manufacturing medicines. And so, we are using this platform to be able to build and, and manufacture all the medicines that, that we will need broadly in the United States, which so frequently are manufactured outside of the United States. Uh, and The impetus for building this was around vaccines, which we knew, uh, if the mRNA vaccines worked, uh, we would not be able to make them at the we scale need, we that need manufacturing
1: right for that. We also, we also we started it, of course, to help make sure there is enough manufacturing in the U.S. and in our allied countries, and not just other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at like what happened when Wuhan shut down and basically all of China shut down, it wasn't just medicines, but it was entire sort of our biotech supply chain. So many of our companies had huge delays in the sort of reagents they were able to get, deals they were able to close, or whatever, because there's so many CROs out there, yep. and it kind of was like you know whether or not you 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 feel discomfort around China owning it, I definitely think we should feel discomfort about not owning our own sort of medical manufacturing supply chain. it's um, it's, it's good for resilience to have America's back for. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think any any company should have you know their ability to manufacture their own medicines. and
1: so uh, so what what are some of the other things that you think? I mean, what do you think happens thanks to you being? Doing what you're doing today, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. How, do, you, do you think about it like that? <laughs>
0: like, what's my deletion cri- deletion criteria? Yeah. Um uh, Are there are
1: there like there companies with like better strategy? There's companies that exist. There's there's companies that get to that you put them higher talent they need to yeah. do things. It's kind of it's kind of fun to think about because you're probably ultimately you're probably helping cure a lot of diseases if you're doing your job right.
0: Yeah, I think the 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 things that I'm most proud of are actually putting incredibly brilliant. Uh, and complementary skill sets in a room and seeing what happens there. Uh, I think, you know, I, I would love to think that I have great ideas and contribute or whatever, but in, in sur- sure, startup founders nod and politely to my ideas and board meetings, but like it's very clear when we get like two or three amazing minds in a room and sparks start to fly that stuff happens at unprecedented scale. And that's, that's you know, what I think has been sort of the, the most value we've generated is. Bringing in, say, amazing software engineers into biotech companies when neither group really realized that they could be talking to each other and gaining so much from each other Uh, or sort of helping, you know, er, like large pharmas talk to early biotechs uh, with skill sets that they just didn't even realize they wanted and like helping do that. And I think it's just that I, ability to connect people with deep problems and figure out how to join so them bring, Bringing
1: the right resources and people together yeah. to solve the problems. And if you, in terms of like falsifiable, optimistic predictions, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the last couple of years, I understand we've had more drugs approved than previously, which is probably tied to a lot of what's going on. Like, and there's obviously all these new tools and there's so yeah. much more money going into this space right now. Like, like, do you see like the amount of drugs and the therapies being approved actually going up a lot on average over the next five years because of this? Or, or, what's, or, or what
0: should the optimism reflect in the real world? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I'm sure we will see more and more drug candidates come through. Uh, the problem of drugs being approved is it's it's very dependent on FDA, right? And so we've had an FDA that's very excited about innovation for several years. Scott Gottlieb was fantastic. Uh, And I think... Uh, even now, the FDA is starting to want more and more innovation to come out. So approval is a little bit dependent on them. Uh, I, 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 and to, and to, but we
1: should see more very promising therapies that, yes. that have, have their data look good. And it's, it's depending on the government what they approve. But, but overall, yeah. there's more good stuff being created.
0: Yes. I would say my sort of falsifiable prediction would be that we're going to start seeing more and more biotechs make drugs that they try to commercialize themselves as opposed to selling to pharma to do the commercialization. There's
1: maybe new. There's gonna be
0: new big pharma companies created, exactly. basically. And, and 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 why is that? So I think the case study of Moderna is is amazing, right? Moderna was a traditional biotech. And is now actually commercializing its own drugs.
1: It was able to raise enough money and
0: stay independent. Yeah, now they own, they control their destiny because they make revenue at a profit. Who would have thought that that's like? What and now they're going to make do?
1: all of us get booster shots and make so much more money.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, and so, uh, but because of that, Moderna is very smart, and they're being very aggressive about saying we have this golden goose, we have this thing that makes a bunch of money. How can we use all of our brilliant scientific minds, our brilliant scientific platform and expand towards other I heard this week they talked about there's going to be a shot for both COVID and the flu or something like yes. that. That's and they're like, cool. they can do this and they can start thinking about using this for, you know, uh, uh, for cancer, you know, as we start thinking about oncolytic viruses or even in vivo cars where we deliver mRNA car, t- uh, car constructs into our T cells. And so what I think this is going to give more biotech's courage to do this, but I also think... That uh, this allows us to cure more and more rare diseases, right? So a big thing about pharma is like when they acquire a company, they really need this to be like a billion dollar a year drug to almost justify a lot of the expenditures. Um, and so if you only made hundred million dollars a year on your drug, this would not be like that big of a needle. God, mover. so it's really hard to raise money
1: for something that's only going to make a hundred million dollars a year. So there's all these rare diseases that it's just yes. hard to get the incentives to cure.
0: But but these newer companies, why can they do it? Because the my, my hope, my prediction, what we're trying to build towards is that we drop the cost to actually make these drugs. so You don't need to raise a billion dollars. So Guys, the they already have platforms that can already make the drugs pretty quickly and easily, yeah. and therefore they might as well
1: go and cure these five rare diseases, which it's now, yes. now worth doing.
0: Exactly. And then if we, if we enable them, if we create infrastructure for both running the clinical trial, we've done this with resilience to help with the manufacturing, help them with commercialization, these companies can go out and we could have many companies sort of IPO and be profitable making quote like only a one hundred to two hundred million dollars, which like in any software sense would be an exciting outcome mm-hmm. uh, but just doesn't you know correct the incentives and I think what's really important about that is right now we're a little bit dependent on on curing diseases that in in areas that pharma wants to cure so we've got like on the order of what 100, maybe 200 pharmas looking to make these M&As. So it means 100 to 200 chief scientific officers are dictating what and diseases there's a little bit care. of
1: group think amongst these scientists. Yeah. Like in any other field, they're going to be thinking about the same things a little exactly. too much. Exactly,
0: yeah. And so, but think about that. Like We have maybe at best 200 people saying what diseases we should cure in the United States. Right, like, and there's a lot of diseases we need to cure. Yeah. that not all of them are focused on. And I think decentralizing and pulling that out and allowing sort of individual companies to go out and cure the diseases on their own is really where I think in ten years I'm so optimistic is to create these businesses that can go after. I
1: know, I know, we don't, we don't always share agreement on on all things political, which I respect. <laughs> uh, but but I think this is kind of cool because you're basically giving like a version of like the pro-liberty. Thesis, which is that the world should be like more distributed and more more decision makers bottom up versus fewer top down. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely don't agree with top down. I don't. I don't agree with top down. There
0: are other parts to this, but
1: I'm 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 just saying, like in general, and it's a general theme. It's good if there's more people. Yes, can make more decisions specifically because they're going to find things that this fewer people at top are missing.
0: Look, we've actually like as a weird analogy, like think about the internet and and what Shopify does, right? Um, Where before. If you wanted to buy anything, it was basically what is offered at Walmart and and like the 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever. And and that's the thing I bought. Right. So yep. uh, and now like if I'm really into I don't know, some esoteric trading card uh, like that I want to collect. It's not available at Walmart, but it's available on the internet. And Walmart has like 100,000, at most
1: 200,000 SKUs. I think yeah. Wish has 100 million SKUs on it. The internet has a billion SKUs on exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And so if you yeah. think about that same model of like this long tail, it can be profitable if you think at a global scale, and we actually reduce the cost to actually start these kinds of innovations and distribute them to people. And think about that in the context of diseases rather than SKUs, right? There are you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of rare diseases that if we can think about this on a global scale to cure them, and and allow smaller entities to cure them more quickly and, and cheaply, then we can actually start hitting this long tail that doesn't make sense in these centralized systems. That's awesome. So we started this podcast
1: because there's a lot of pessimism going on right now, and I want to educate people about all these awesome optimistic things and share this and get them hopefully more excited and helping with the positive parts of our society. Um, are you still glad that your parents came to the United States as a place you're proud to be and, and and what's your view on the future of America?
0: Yeah, of course I'm excited about it. like <laughs> uh, I feel like I I should be like on the on the front uh, photo of the pamphlet of the American dream, right? For us to, you know, come to the US for me able to get like an amazing education at public schools and then go to Stanford and get like an amazing PhD and be able to work in venture capital and bring innovation, you know, to people is like what like that's literally what, what you come to America to do. So how, how do we make sure things keep getting better in, the, in this country? Think, <laughs> uh, I think um, uh, what America has uh, that sometimes I think we forget is we have first round draft on the greatest talent in the world, right? If there is a smart person anywhere in the world we could find a way to get them to america so i think immigration is core to this right and then creating cultures that like allow for this this is maybe Mm-hmm. I don't think we disagree here, but maybe my more liberal sentiments is like, how do we create an environment that like allows for so many different minds and perspectives and cultures to come in and feel welcome and able to succeed? Um, and I think that's... To so being a pluralistic society
1: that's tolerant of, of everyone. Yes. As opposed to society where people are trying to destroy everyone's reputation when they disagree with them.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, like I, I, I just... What I really dislike is tribalism, right? And yeah. and I think that can be attributed to any kinds of these groups. There's, there's
1: extremes on both sides of tribalism yeah. right now. And,
0: yeah. and it doesn't even matter like what's like. There's no definition of side. There's just tribalisms, so and we decide yeah. like here's our group, here's my in group, here's the out group, and um, the the ability to come into the U.S. and feel. Safe and welcome means finding your people, right? It doesn't mean there aren't. Do you different. think
1: academics have gotten more tribal or less tribal though over the last decade? Is is, that, is the tribalism like affecting that part of society potentially as well in some ways?
0: Um, I I don't know if I would call it tribalism. I would say that um, what we are saying is is people who are more comfortable having, say, black and white views. Uh, maybe divorced of the nuance within there uh, because they are divorced enough from situations where nuance is important so uh, to maybe make that abstract statement a little more concrete like if you are in a tenured position in academia uh, and and you consider moving to industry the dark side which is always considered like the the, the phrase mm-hmm. that they tell you um, you have like the privilege of principle that many other people don't, right? You don't have to make trade-offs to function in society. You get to spout and like have the opinions that you want, and that's wonderful. You don't you have to get try to, have to make a
1: business work, which requires some kind of trade-off, you're saying. Or, exactly.
0: Or- like Anybody who's ever run a business or been in a large organization has seen like like gray area HR situations manifest, right? Where... On one hand, somebody might say or do something that is that is reprehensible, uh, and they sh- and they should be let go. But so frequently, there's just ways to navigate people to better behavior, and I think you know, operating in a realm of forgiveness is is so clutch and important. Uh, both you know within you know conservative ideologies or liberal ideologies, if we if we want to paint that into yeah. groups. Um, and that's kind of how we function with our families, right? like we yeah. are we are forgiving if our family members do us wrong or say awful things or whatever to to some degree obviously we always in have some of these places
1: are don't ha, don't have to be as forgiving in order to get things done and work in the world. I
0: think when you get into these hyper tribal situations, when we get into these situations where you're divorced from having to be you know. Functioning with people who are different than you You might be less forgiving. You you don't have to be forgiving. You don't have to flex that muscle. No, no that no, that's great. One 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 last question to leave us with. Yeah. Uh, if the
1: revolution in bio continues, and a lot of times people don't understand exponential growth is not intuitive. If this keeps going for twenty or thirty years, what are some of like the really crazy cool things we might see in our
0: lifetime? Oh man, uh, yeah. I think we would flip the model of what we think of in bio. Life sciences from uh, uh, amelioration of suffering, which is essentially curing diseases, to sort of uh, uh, improvement of like human condition. Like this, uh, the transhumanists might call it something like that. And it's a thorny issue, but I think like. So basically, helping everyone be like self actualized and be a better version of themselves and feel healthier
1: and higher energy every day.
0: Yeah. So like, think about maybe something we see today a little bit is like therapy is used because we're trying to treat conditions like treat depression anxiety so on and so forth but how much of like, say, mental health coaching can be done to actually help us achieve like a better version of ourselves? And this is like considered coaching today. Uh, mm. but you know, and psychology is about really sort of man, like managing sort of downside things. And I think we can think about them. The bio, you can think about biology. focusing
1: on the upside instead of just the downside. Exactly. So each one of us could have a ton more energy, it could be instead of being 80% on some metric, we could be at exactly. 100%. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so flipping that model, it's like, Okay, we're not we we've moved beyond just just curing diseases. We're using this for like manufacturing. We're using this to help like vegans be able to like eat sustainable you know meats or whatever, and even like say people who eat meat to eat less meat or whatever. Uh, those are all things that are beyond sort of necessarily human healthcare, but really about kind of like growing ourselves as people in a society. Awesome, thanks, Francisco. Absolutely, thanks, Joe.